to uh, to be with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, we're going to open up to John chapter nine. John chapter nine. Last week we were here and we looked at the first uh, seven verses, and uh, this morning we're going to go back and we're just going to take the chapter as a whole. So we're going to we're going to try to cover all forty one verses. Obviously, we're not going word by word. We want to try to get a big picture view. Now, one of the reasons why uh, that I want to do this is because often in in narratives like John, um, that we we tend to miss things if we try to cut up a narrative uh, into a bunch of little chunks. It doesn't mean we can't ever do that or that there's no profit at all in doing that, but sometimes we can miss some of the overall themes or at least a single thread of theme that works its way through the entire chapter or narrative as however it's split up. This is, I think, one of those chapters. We said last week chapters 8 and 9 uh, really do go together, and then obviously 10 could be viewed in light of 9, but chapter 8, Jesus talks about being the light of the world. Whoever would follow Him would not be or walk in darkness and then chapter nine really does illustrate that. We get a, um, we see that played out. Now in John eight, Jesus is in some extended back and forth with, um, the, uh, with the Jews and, um, they're challenging him on this claim, on this statement. And we're going to see more of that this morning as we look into, uh, John chapter nine. So as Jesus is the light of the world, What we're going to look at this morning, or the title of the message this morning, is the illuminating, exposing, and blinding effects of the light. The illuminating, exposing, and blinding effects of the light. Our text this morning is um, the entire chapter, and in these 41 verses, we have seven conversations Approximately 14 questions that are asked and really one major point that John is trying to drive home or we could say that Jesus is driving home. That one major point is in verse 39. We will read that and I think it's helpful if you keep that in mind as we look at the rest of the chapter and we see this point played out. Verse 39 says, And Jesus said, For judgment... I am come into this world that they which see not might see and that they which see might be made blind. For judgment, Jesus says, I've come into the world. Now, this is a view of Jesus that is not a very popular view with the world or even a very known view with the world. I mean, we could take the first half and and that would be fine. This is what Jesus came to do. He came to give sight to the blind. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, I came to give sight to the blind, but I also came to make blind those who see. Now, really what he's saying here, and we'll see it as the, as the passage plays out, to expose the blindness of those who think they see is what Jesus is doing here. So seven conversations. We're going to walk through those and then we're going to make some applications there at the end. So conversation number one, what we looked at last week, Jesus' conversation with the disciples, and this is where this miracle takes place of the blind man receiving sight. So John 9, verse 1, 
Jesus passed by. He saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He, being the blind man, went his way therefore and washed, and he came back seeing. So really two Two major things that happen in this section. The conversation between Jesus and the disciples is precipitated by them coming upon this blind man. Jesus sees a man who was blind from birth, and we dealt with a lot of this last week. And the disciples just ask the question, why is he blind? Is it because of his sin? Or is it because of the sin of his parents? Jesus' answer to that is, neither. It is so that the works of God might be made manifest in him. I must work the works of God. And then the work that Jesus works is giving this man sight. Um, After he answers the disciples' question, talks about being the light of the world as long as he is in the world. Then Jesus takes some, um, some clay, some dirt, He spits in it, mixes it up, puts it on the man's eyes, and tells him to go wash. The man obeys what Jesus says, and his sight is restored. Um, Now, one of the questions that might make us curious as we look at a text like this, if you read through the Gospels, you find that Jesus, this is not the only blind man that Jesus heals. He heals other blind men as well. And so the question is, why did Jesus spit in the dirt and rub clay in the guy's eyes and tell him to go wash? And the answer is, I don't know. And neither do you. Because Scripture doesn't tell us why. So that's a fine thing to be curious about. But don't let that somehow become the overarching point of the story for you. It was dirt. It was spit. It was rubbed in his eyes. Sounds kind of nasty, but once he washed it off, he could see. Okay. When he saw, here's the point, he saw, and when he came back, this man who formerly was blind, now the fact that he was blind meant several things for him. Number one, it meant he could not go in and... Um, participate in temple worship. Okay? A lame man could not do that. He had to stay outside of the temple. Because he was blind, he was also hindered from any real kind of um, uh, chance of work. He couldn't work. Uh, no real chances of marriage. Uh, the fact that he was blind really reduced his life down to that of a beggar, and he was strategically placed outside of the temple to beg because when folks leave church, they feel generous. 
Okay, so he would sit there. And the point is, there were people who recognized this man. I mean, the next conversation we have is between the neighbors and the man. So he was kind of a staple. They they knew who um, the the men were, or at least had some recognition of the blind men, the lame men who sat and and would beg outside of the temple or even the temple gate. But Jesus comes, he gives this man sight, and that leads into conversation number two. That's in verses 8 through 12. The neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him that was blind said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He's like him. But he said, I am he. Therefore, and said they unto him, How were thine eyes opened? And he answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said unto me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed and I received sight. So the man comes back seeing. The text tells us, it's, it's, it's kind of a funny, I mean, if you read it and, and, and think about the scene, it's kind of a funny scene. The, the neighbors and those who were with him, they come out and there's this curiosity. The blind man is obviously sitting or standing close enough to hear what's being said. And they say, wait a minute, is this, let's just say his name was John. Is this John? And somebody says, yeah, I think that is John. And somebody else says, no, that's not John. And John says, hey, guys, I can hear what you're saying. It's me. It's me. It, it, it's I was blind and now I can see. It really is me. It's not a lookalike. It's not one of those bizarre twin things. Jesus healed me. I was just here. And He's given me sight. And now I can see. And the neighbors ask the next logical question. How? How did this happen? And the blind man says this. Jesus made the clay, put it on my eyes, told me to wash. I did, and now I see. And then the question is, where is he? And the blind man says, or former blind man says, I do not know. I don't know where he is. So this leads to conversation number three. Since he didn't know, then the neighbors decided and those who were around that they ought to bring this man and his story up before the Pharisees. So they take him in verse 13. It says they brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind. And it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes Then again, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. And he said unto them, he put clay upon my eyes and I washed and I do see. Therefore, said some of the Pharisees, this man is not of God because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others said, how can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. And they say unto the blind man again, what sayest thou of him that he hath opened thine eyes? And he, that is the blind man, said, he is a prophet. He is a prophet. So the neighbors bring the blind man, or the formerly blind man, to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees start out the same way. How did this happen? 
And he says, the man came up, spits on the ground, mixes it, puts it in my eyes, I wash it off, then I can see. And then you'll notice in verse 16, immediately, there is a division among the Pharisees. Some say, this man can't be of God because it is a, it is the Sabbath day. Now, we've covered the Sabbath stuff in previous chapters, but one of the things I'll remind you of is that the Jews had, um, codified or defined over and above what Scripture had defined, what was allowed on the Sabbath and what was not. And so one of the things, and and I can't remember now exactly um, the exact wording of it, but one of the things that they had nailed down as something you could not do on the Sabbath was you could not need, like kneading bread and that sort of a thing. And the way that Jesus violates the Sabbath in this particular instance is not necessarily through the miracle. It's by mixing the mud and the spit. Kneading. Can you believe that? I mean, how particular, or maybe we should say, how holy must you be to criticize something like that? We say ridiculous. They say committed. Right? So there's a division. Some of the Pharisees say, and we'll, we'll see what was really motivating some of this in a minute. Some of the Pharisees say, there's no way this man is of God because he broke the Sabbath. The other side say, I don't see how he's not from God because how in the world do you take a man who's blind and give him his sight? Now that's the most obvious question of the day, isn't it? How do you take a guy who hasn't seen from birth and somehow restore his sight? So there's a division. And this conversation ends with the Pharisees saying to the man who was healed, what do you think about this guy, Jesus? And he says, verse 17, he is a prophet. He's a prophet. This leads us into conversation number four between the Pharisees and the former blind man's parents. It says in verse 18, but the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. So, the Jews, the Pharisees, we'll keep reading in a minute, but just so we're tracking with the text. There's no question that this guy can see, but the Pharisees question whether or not this guy had ever been blind to begin with. And so they call in his parents to see. In verse 19, says, and they asked them, saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but by what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age, ask him. He shall speak for himself. 
These words spake his parents because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So the Pharisees and the parents, the parents are brought in. This is more of an interrogation than it is anything else. Question number one, is this your son? Yes. Was he really born blind? Yes. And then the third question, how did he receive his sight? And the parents' answer is a, is a pretty curious answer. Now, I want you to think about this as you're thinking about this conversation. I want you to imagine that you have a child that you have raised that was blind from birth. And he has somehow miraculously gained his sight. And when you're questioned about it, it becomes more of a problem than it does a celebration. Think about that. This is their answer. He is of age. Ask him. And we find out the reason they said that was because they were scared. That's why. They were afraid to say something wrong. Um, now, he is of age just means he's old enough to speak for himself. This could mean, we don't know this for sure, but it could mean, could possibly mean, that the man who was born blind is a very young man. It may not have been as obvious to the Pharisees that he was old enough to speak for himself. Maybe that he was a teenager even. We don't know that, but there might not be much of a reason for them to bring the parents in to ask how, were that not the case. Verse 22, though, does help us put this questioning into perspective. Verse 22 tells us um, the parents were afraid to speak because they feared the Jews, because the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that Jesus was the Christ, it says he, but they're talking about Jesus was the Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. Now, they're not saying he would be asked to leave for the day. They're saying he would be excluded from the temple worship. They would be kicked out. And there would be all kinds of social ramifications, cultural ramifications that would be associated with their excluding exclusion or being removed from uh, temple worship. And so based on verse 22, again, it's, it's clear. The Pharisees are not really trying to investigate this story. They're really trying to kill the story. They're trying to spin the story in some bad light. And so the parents know this. And so like any careful witness who's testifying in court, they are saying as little as possible for fear that the lawyers might twist their words and incriminate them. That's why they're, they're saying the things that they're saying. They do not want their words to be used against them and they do not want to be incriminated. And so 
the Pharisees and the parents. They're brought in, they're questioned, they say as little as possible, and then essentially throw their son under the bus and say, talk to him. Conversation number five. The former blind man and the Pharisees have a second conversation. So the Pharisees can't get out of the parents what they're looking for. So they bring the blind man back in. Verse 24, Then again called they the man that was blind and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. Then said they to him again, what did, what did he to thee? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you did not hear. Wherefore, would you hear it again? Will you also be his disciples? Then they reviled him or they ridiculed him and they said, thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spake unto Moses. As for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. The man answered and said unto them, Why, herein is a marvelous thing, that you know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened my eyes. Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. Since the world began, it was not heard that a man opened the eyes of one that was born blind. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. They answered and they said unto him, Thou wast altogether born in sin, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. Pharisees' conversation, follow-up conversation with the man born blind. Number one, they start out by trying to manipulate him through intimidation. Now, it's couched in holy language, verse 24. They called the man that was blind and they said to him, Give God the praise... We know that this man is a sinner. Give God the praise. This is manipulation. We know, this is intimidation, that this man is a sinner. And if you don't agree with us, you know what happens next. And so, the uh, man that was born blind, really, I mean, as it's recorded, the Lord just blesses him with... Um, a couple of incredible responses here. Response number one is, look, I don't know everything, but I know this. I was blind, and now I see. Now, when you're, tra when you're trying to think of weighty pieces of evidence, how heavy does that weigh? In relation to this man rubs spit and mud together. Right? The balance goes like this, right? I mean, it's pretty, pretty, pretty big. The man says, I don't know everything about him, but I know this. I know that I was blind and now I see. The Pharisees then ask him again, okay, how did Jesus give you your sign? And the man goes from 
this I was blind, but now I see into sort of a sarcastic response in verse 27. I mean, this is going to be the third time he's told the story. He took the mud, spit on it, rubbed my eyes, sent me to the pool of Siloam. I washed. Now I can see. But instead he just says, I've told you this already and you didn't hear it then. Why do you want to hear it a second time? Are you going to become his disciple? The Pharisees become indignant at this. It says that they reviled or they ridiculed him. Essentially, they say, how dare you ask us if we want to be his disciple? We're Moses' disciples, and we know that God spake to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he's from. And the man says, well, isn't that interesting? You know God spoke through Moses, but you don't know where this man was from? We know that God does not hear Sinners, he doesn't work through rebels, but this man restored my sight. You say you have no idea where this man came from, and, and, and yet he says, from the beginning of the world, there hasn't been a story like this that we've heard of. This man has made his claims, his works, seem to back those claims up, and yet you're confused. Essentially, the man that was formerly blind just states the obvious. That's verses 30 through 33. And then here's the response. In verse 34, they answered and they said to him, Thou wast altogether born in sin, and dost thou teach us We'll say a little bit more about this later. But essentially, the uh, man born blind gives a good defense as to why he thinks Jesus, at this point, he thinks Jesus is a prophet. The Pharisees don't even bother to give any sort of a refutation to that offense. They don't try to deal with any of the arguments. They don't try to deal with any of the details. Essentially, they go back to who are you to teach us? We're the authorities here, not you. Or maybe we could think about it this way as we try to relate it to and as we apply it, we will apply it to the world. Maybe we could think of it this way. We are the intelligent ones around here. You are the dum-dum. You ought to be listening to us. Now, I'm not to application just yet. But if that's not a mirror of the way the atheistic, unbelieving world addresses Christians and arguments built on Scripture, I don't know what it is. Who are you to speak to us in that way? You are born in sin. Okay, this is the, you'll remember the, the uh, disciples had this question. The Pharisees' theology and the disciples' theology are they're right there together. He's not saying you are a sinner born in original sin. They're referring to his being born blind. We know you're a beggar. You were born maimed, blind. 
Who are you to teach us? And so what did they do? They, they cast him out of the temple. Bad theology. Um, they, their pride was hurt. And so they got rid of the guy. They couldn't cancel the story. They couldn't spin the story. So they had to get rid of the evidence. You remember what happened whenever Lazarus was raised from the dead? You remember the Pharisees' response then? You remember who they wanted to kill again? <laughs> Lazarus? Isn't that something? A blind man is healed. Rather than celebrate, we've got to get rid of him because he's not fitting our narrative. A dead man is raised. Rather than standing in awe and celebrating that, we've got to get rid of the guy because he's messing up our agenda. Then we get to conversation number six. That is Jesus with the man who was born blind. So the man is cast out. Then in verse 35, it says, Jesus heard that they cast him out, and when they had, and when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and he said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Really, this conversation with the man leads to the man's conversion, to his profession of faith. The man has been cast out. It says Jesus finds him. He asks him a question. He reveals his identity. And then the man makes a profession of faith. And then we turn to the last conversation here. That's Jesus with the Pharisees. In verse 39, and again, I would argue this verse is the thread that connects verse 1 through 41. Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world that they which see, I'm sorry, they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? Jesus said unto them, If you were blind, you should have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remaineth. So Jesus makes this statement after the blind man is given physical sight. Later, it's obvious he's also been given spiritual sight. Be able to see who Jesus is, the Son of God. And then Jesus makes the statement. This is why I've come for judgment, so that the blind might have sight and that those who have sight might be made blind. And then you really, I mean, you almost can't even make this stuff up. And then the Pharisees say, you talking about us? Are we blind? And Jesus says, the, the, the response can be a little confusing. Jesus says, if you were blind, you should have no sin. But now you say, we see. Therefore, your sin 
remains. Jesus says, the condemnation here for you is that you claim to see when in fact you're blind. You've seen the light and you've rejected the light. And that's where the judgment or the condemnation there comes. Now, this is not a sweeping theological statement that Jesus is making. And some people could take a statement like that and say, well, what do you do with those guys who never hear the gospel? Those guys who have no idea what you see or do not see. They've never heard of Jesus. Well, that's not really what Jesus is speaking to here. Jesus is speaking to these men who think that they have superior intellect. They think that they see things for what they are and they are not interested in the truth. And they're so disinterested in truth and so uh, self-inflated that whenever the truth is right in front of them, they reject it. Jesus says in Matthew 11, as far as this judgment is concerned, we have similar language in Matthew 11, verse 20 and 24, or sorry, 20 through 24. It says in Matthew 11, starting in verse 20, Then began He, that is Jesus, to abrade the cities wherein most of His mighty works were done because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which had been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Now, when Jesus is saying these things, He's not in any way trying to exalt Sodom as a model of anything, or even Tyre and Sidon as a model of anything. But what He is saying is that your blindness is exposed in the sense of if Sodom would have had this kind of light, they would have turned. If Tyre and Sidon would have had this kind of light, they would have turned. And we may say, well, why didn't they have that kind of light? And that might be a different conversation. But the point that he's making is, here's the judgment. The truth is right in front of you. And you've rejected it. He does the same thing in Matthew chapter 12, or at least the same sort of concept in Matthew chapter 12 in verse 41 when he says, the men of Nineveh, shall, of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it for she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, the greater than Solomon is here. Since this is a condemnation, there's going to be uh, there's going to be consequences for coming face to face with the truth and rejecting it. So, what's the application? Well, there's a couple of applications we can make. 
from this section in John chapter 9. The first one is a little broader. The second one fits into uh, to our title. You know, we've we've said out of John 21 that his purpose in writing the book is that you might believe. So application number one from John chapter nine, this is as plain as day as you work your way through this chapter. Miracles are not sufficient to produce belief. Miracles are not sufficient to produce belief. Some people say, I don't believe because I don't have enough evidence If I could see God do this, and if I could see God do that, and if He would have this, or if He would have that, then I would believe. Biblically speaking, you can trace the the development of the generations that saw the most miracles, and there's a correlation with the generations that really had the hardest hearts. Toward the Lord, what happened after um, after the uh, nation of Israel was delivered from Egypt, brought through the Red Sea? When you get to the New Testament, and and that generation is spoken of, it's not the zealous generation that came out of Egypt. It's the stiff-necked and hard-hearted generation that died in the wilderness. Now we could go on. I think this is, this is partially what's happening in Matthew 11 and Matthew 12 that Jesus is bringing up as far as what the Pharisees and the Jews had seen and rejected. Um, but whenever we're thinking about unbelief, unbelief is never because of a lack of evidence. And it's certainly not because of a lack of miraculous evidence, because miracles throughout redemptive history have never been sufficient to produce belief. In Luke chapter 16, we get the parable of the, um, the rich man and Lazarus. And you'll remember the, the, uh, the rich man ends up in hell and he's begging Abraham to go back and to warn his five brothers Abraham says he has Moses, or they have Moses. That is, that they have Scripture. They can hear him. And uh, the rich man says, no, that's not good enough. If you go back, if they see a dead man, then they'll believe. And uh, Abraham says, if they will not hear Moses, then they will not hear a dead man either. Right? Someone could be resurrected from the dead and send them a message, and it would be neat for a minute. And that would be that. Or someone could be resurrected from the dead and could come to send them a message and they would spend the whole time arguing over whether or not the guy actually died to begin with. Miracles are not sufficient to produce faith. It is worth noting that in this story, there are four different responses to the same miracle And the responses have little or nothing to do with the miracle itself. Four different responses to the same miracle. And the responses have little to nothing to do with the miracle itself. Response number one. 
the neighbors. I mean, the neighbors come around, they're the first to, to see this man and really speak into what's happened. They come around and they are curious. But ultimately, after a couple of questions, remember the question was what happened? The bud, the spit, the eyes, the water, now I see. Where is this man? I don't know. Ultimately, the neighbors decided they better let the Pharisees examine things and then tell them what to believe about it. We might say that the neighbors were just intellectually lazy. We don't see what's necessarily called a hard heart. We don't even see strong opposition here. You might even say the neighbors are just agnostic. They're not willing to make a statement one way or the other. But they are going to take this case to the authorities and essentially say, you tell us how to think about this. Secondly, the parents. Now, I'm not really beating up on the parents. They were in a difficult spot. But again, we're talking about a son who they raised, who was blind from birth, who can see for the first time. And when you read the account of the parents, what you find is that for the parents, the miracle was a problem, really. It was a problem for them because it puts them in a position to be put out of the synagogue if they acknowledge what Jesus did. Someone says, I don't have enough evidence. Well, what if the evidence that you do have is a problem for you? What if the evidence that you do have means you're going to have to sacrifice more than you're willing to give up? See, that's where the parents are. It's bad to be put out of the synagogue. That's, that's, there's, no, there's no question about that. The neighbors may have been confused. I mean, you could justify, of course, the guy clears it up, but the parents, there's no confusion. They know exactly what's happened. And maybe for the only time in my ministry, I'll quote Al Gore and say, it was an inconvenient truth. It was inconvenient that their son was healed the way that he was healed by the person who healed him. For the Pharisees, this miracle actually hardens them toward Jesus and influences them not only to try to discredit him again as a Sabbath breaker, but even to try to discredit that the man was ever blind to begin with. And again, verse 22 lets us know that the Pharisees already had their verdict decided before the story was ever told. We could put it this way. According to verse 22, the Pharisees had already decided what their judgment was going to be on the works of Christ, on, we could say, the miracles of Christ before He even performed it. They had already decided. They had made up their mind, and here's why. 
Jesus was a threat to their status. And no matter what He did, they were going to criticize it and they were going to condemn it. So to the claim of there's just not enough evidence to a heart that's like the pharisaical heart, all the evidence is going to do is give you more to spin. You know, the story to spin, the the story to manipulate to your own advantage. But then we have the blind man. And for him, this miracle leads to his conversion. You'll notice that the man's sight was restored immediately. Verse 7, he goes, he washes, he sees. But you'll also notice that, that throughout the story, the man's understanding develops incrementally about who Jesus is. So in verse 11, when they, whenever he's asked, who, who did this by the neighbors? He says, this man named Jesus. He doesn't really know who Jesus is. He's a man. Verse 17, he's asked by the Pharisees, who did this? What do you say about this man? Well, he's a prophet. There's little development there. Incremental. He's not all the way where he needs to be, but he's incrementally growing in his understanding. He goes from a man to a prophet. Verse 33, as the man who was formerly blind is making his case before the Pharisees, he goes from being a prophet to a man sent by God. Now he says a man of God, but it's a man who was sent to do God's work. Who who does these kinds of things if God's not with them? Until ultimately, in verse 38, he confesses that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The question is in verse 35 that Jesus gives. Um, Do you believe on the Son of God? After Jesus clarifies who that is, then in verse 38, he says, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Now, this really does illustrate the nature of regeneration and conversion in the life of a believer. The man's sight was given instantaneously. In the same way as the Spirit quickens a heart, it's immediate. It's, it's, a, it's an event being brought from death to life. But conversion is not that way. Conversion is oftentimes an incremental process. It's a progression of growth. It's an understanding that develops over time. For this man, the miracle was step one in his conversion. And then the Lord slowly but surely brings this man to a knowledge of who he is. And he professes faith. This is the blind man's response to the miracle based on the work of Christ in his life. So, application number one, miracles are not sufficient to produce faith or belief. And then application number two, 
this is more in line with our title this morning. The light does several things in this passage. It illuminates, I say it, He, Jesus Christ is the light, illuminates, exposes, and blinds. Illuminates, exposes, and, and blinds. Perhaps you've heard this said, that the same sun that melts butter hardens concrete. The light has different effects depending on what it is... Uh, uh, on the object that's receiving its rays. We could say it that way. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, <coughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Verses 3 through 7. Says, but if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is in the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I, Let me just stop there. Paul is talking about the gospel ministry here. And he says, if our gospel is hid, it is hid to those who are lost. And then he goes on in verse 6 to talk about... Um, uh, I'm sorry, it goes on in verse 4 to talk about the fact that those who are lost are also those who are blinded. The God of this world has blinded the minds of them who believe not. Well, how do the blind receive their sight? Verse 6, God shines the light into the hearts his people, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's an illumination that takes place. But then in Matthew chapter 13, and I'm not going to read there, but if you're taking notes, you can take it for time's sake. I'm going to just tell you what it says. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus introduces parables into his teaching and the disciples come and they say, why are you teaching in parables? And Jesus says the parables have a twofold purpose. The parables are, are, I speak in parables in order to reveal truth to those who have been given eyes to see. And I speak in parables to conceal truth from those who do not have eyes to see. There's a twofold purpose to reveal and to conceal. Now this, this, fits this category of the different effects that the light has and the object that it reaches. So, if we were to go back through our text in John chapter 9, we could see several things. Number one, we've mentioned this, but I'll mention it again. The light exposes the intellectual laziness of the neighbors who were just kind of curious 
but they're not really going to put much investment into. Who is this man? Intellectual laziness. You know, much of unbelief is just intellectual laziness. People, people take claims that people have made. And, and as I say all this, I say all this uh, without trying to throw away the fact that our eyes must be opened by um, the, uh, the grace of God in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. I understand um, regeneration and how that works. But as you make sense out of unbelief, and as people look at the claims of Christ and reject them, much of the time, it's just intellectual laziness. You hear things like the Bible is full of contradictions. You, you hear things um, that are uh, packaged in intelligent sounding phrases and words. Uh, many times when you begin to go down the trail and try to figure out where these things came from, uh, you realize there's really no credibility to them at all. Intellectual laziness, whether that means they haven't searched out Scripture for themselves or they have blindly adopted presuppositions that they don't really even understand. Number two, the light exposes the fear of man and the former blind man's parents. Okay, this is what's being put on display. They fear the Pharisees. They fear being put out of the synagogue. They fear what it's going to cost them. And so they do not go where the evidence obviously leads. Number three, the Pharisees were exposed to the light and it, it hardened their unbelief. It hardened them. It solidified their unbelief. The light exposes several things here. Number one, the light exposes that they were blinded by legalism and self-righteousness. We talked about this earlier also when the, the uh, man at the pool of Bethesda was healed, but the biggest thing that they focus on and the fact that a blind man was given sight was that Jesus mixed mud and spit and violated the Sabbath law. Self-righteous and legalism that would make that the, the main thing. The light exposes that they had also, that they were blinded by their predetermined commitment not to believe what Jesus said about himself, no matter what he did. Verse 22. Verse 22 essentially says that the Pharisees had decided Jesus can't be the Christ because we don't want him to be the Christ. That's the logic of a lot of unbelievers. Jesus can't be God incarnate because we don't want Him to be God incarnate. And it's not because there's an intellectual problem, it's because there's a moral problem or because we're going to have to um, sacrifice some selfish ambition and pride that we're not willing to let go of yet. Third, the light exposes that they were blinded by pride and selfish ambition. And this happens in verse 34 as, again, the former blind man gives a very good and reasoned argument. And it's completely dismissed. 
not by answering the man, but by insulting him and dismissing him in a power play. There's a lot of unbelief, a lot of unbelievers that operate out of the same position. But then, again, we have the blind man. He was given physical and spiritual sight, and his understanding was illuminated. Now, here's a question for us to consider. Out of all four parties in this story, the blind man, the neighbors, the parents, the Pharisees, why is it that only the blind man or the man who was formerly blind, why is it that he's the only one in the story who can actually see what's happened? The answer is, he's the only one in the story who had been given sight. He wasn't smarter. Matter of fact, you could probably make the argument he was the, the least educated man in the room. He had been given sight. The Spirit had begun to develop his understanding. And as we said, you can track his conversion. One of the other things you'll notice, you'll notice the simplicity of this man's faith. And we'll end it here. You see, I think starting out, the man who was formerly blind knows what's happened to him, but he also recognizes that in front of the Pharisees, he's kind of out of his league. And so they say, give glory to God, verse 25. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 24. Give glory to God or give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. And here's the testimony of the blind man. Whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. But this is what I do know. I was blind, but now I see. I was blind, but now I see. The simplicity of faith. There's a lot that this guy does not know. Now, as he's pushed, he'll develop more arguments. But at this point, he knows this. I was blind. I spent the majority of my life. I mean, there's only we don't know how long this exchange took place, but maybe hours or a few days at most that I've actually been able to see. I was blind, but now I see. This really is the seedbed of a profession of faith, isn't it? Not only was he able to see physically, but we also know, based on his profession of faith, at the end of the story, that he had seen spiritually. I wonder if you can say that this morning. Can you bear witness to the fact that there was a time in your life where you were blind to the realities of sin? Blind to the realities of sin in your life. And blind to the beauties of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
That's every believer's testimony. Is it yours? Can you bear witness to the fact that there was a time when the Lord opened your spiritual eyes, as it were, and began to show you the ugliness of sin and your need for Jesus Christ as your Savior? Brothers and sisters, if you can bear witness to that, then the light of Christ has illuminated your heart and has opened up your eyes so that you can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you cannot say that this morning, then your prayer is this. It it doesn't come from this blind man, but it comes from another. Have mercy on me, son of David. Have mercy. Open my eyes. Bless me to see not only the reality of my sin, but the reality of who you are. Open my heart that I might be able to see and worship the living God. Jesus is the light of the world. And John chapter 9 illustrates for us the fact that the light illuminates, exposes, and blinds. May God bless us to see and to have understanding this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank You again for Your Word. We thank You for preserving it for us. We thank You for giving it to us. And Lord, we thank You for John chapter 9. Lord, we pray that through the Spirit's work that You would bless our hearts to be exposed as we interact with this narrative. That You would show us things about ourselves that maybe we're not currently seeing. Lord, I pray that You would use Your Word to illuminate realities about You that we currently maybe do not understand or maybe they're undeveloped in our hearts and in our minds. Or maybe through the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we pray that You would use Your Word and the message this morning even to bring some uh, to faith through the regenerating power of the Spirit and the converting work of the Word and Spirit together. Lord, we confess that You are the light of the world. We pray that You would help us to follow You, not to walk in darkness, but to walk in the light of life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.